Your place in history is certainly there as the first black manager. And then Dave Roberts wins a World Series. And then your good friend and my good friend, Dusty Baker, breaks them. I'm getting goosebumps as you, you mentioned their names and what they have done. So proud of both of them. And it opens up the door for hopefully other black guys, you know, other African-Americans. Well, this is absolutely very special for me because I get to sit down and chat with someone who I haven't seen in a little while, uh, but is certainly no stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And that's former Major League Managing Great, former Major Leaguer as well, Mr. Cito Gaston. Cito, welcome to Black Diamonds, man. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It it is an absolute pleasure. As I said, it's great to catch up with you again. It's been a while, but your first visit to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we were honoring you with the Jackie Robinson Lifetime Achievement Award. And, And I'll admit, it was one of the highlights for me and my involvement at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to have you here and to present that award named for Jackie Robinson and put that in your hands. And we actually have a photograph now of you inside the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So yeah, you got to come back now and see yourself inside the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But take us back to your first visit here to the museum. And what was that like for you? It was amazing for me because I had never seen anything like that, you know, as far as a uh, 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 when you want to say black players or African-American players or whatever. It was so interesting to all the photos you had there. And me and you, you're just, you're just the greatest person to uh, be around in that situation there because, and I'm pretty sure other situations, but you treated everybody so great. You're so graceful. And I really enjoyed it. It was like, my, it was like I was getting goosebumps as I was walking through and trying to figure out what these guys went through, you know, to play in the Negro League because I know it wasn't easy for those guys riding buses all day and certainly not sleeping in places they should be sleeping in. I did a little bit too in the mile league, so I, I had a little bit of an idea, but mm-hmm. what a beautiful what a beautiful place. Yeah. And, and, and what did it mean to get an award named for Jack? Oh, that means that means the world to me, man. That this this man here, you know, when he talked about Martin Luther King, uh, who I really, really love and appreciate too. Jackie started the whole thing, if you really think about it, though. He really did. And he put up with a lot, a lot that, that most people could not, couldn't even bear to even deal with half of it, what he had to put up with. And you know what I mean about that, because of course. pretty sure he's called a lot of names, different places. Uh, even back when Hank Aaron won for his home run record, he did. He put up with a lot of that, too. Uh, who was my, who I was his ex-roommate, I have to say it that way, because, uh, you know, he's a great friend of mine, but... Um, to Jackie Robinson, to have that honor, God, God, I am so lucky and so blessed that, that you guys have looked at me and said, hey, maybe we want to see if Cito Gaston deserves this or give it to Cito. That was great. No, Thank no you. man, it, it was one of, the, like I said, one of the highlights for us here at the museum to have you here and to honor you for all you have given this game. Now, do you ever sit back from time to time and think about the fact that you're connected in so many ways, with so much history in this game. You know, you get a Jackie Robinson Lifetime Achievement Award, and you just mentioned you were once roommate with Henry Aaron. And, I mean, when you start talking about Jackie Robinson and then Henry Aaron, that's uh, pretty impressive in in so many different ways. You ever just sat back and think about 
your connection to history in, in that way? As I get older, I do. I really do. And as you said, uh, I've been blessed to uh, to be able to uh, live this sort of life and go through these things and and be the first black manager to ever won a World Series. Of, you know, and so I was blessed and uh, I was blessed by knowing Hank Aaron. I, I didn't get to know Mr. Robertson. Wish I had. I wish I could have met him because he did so much for all of you and I wouldn't be at this exactly. situation and without him. And so, yeah, it, it's I do think about it more as I get older and I think about um, all the things I went through to get there. But there, there was a lot of good times, too. A lot of tough times, but a lot of good times. So uh, God's been great for me. Thank you. Did when I should say, while you were rooming with Mr. Aaron and hanging out with Mr. Aaron as you were a member of the Braves and a young Dusty Baker is there yeah. as well. And, and Dusty told me, Cito, in 68, when Satchel came over to, to, to be there with the Braves and Bill Bartholomew, of course, brought him in because they thought he was a little bit shy of his pension. It turns out that he became pension eligible prior to that, but he still hung out that year with the Braves and Dustin say he used to carry Satchel's fishing pole uh, because, you know, Satchel always had his fishing rods with him everywhere that he went and that Satchel promised him a fishing rod, but he never did give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember anything relative to your time with Mr. Aaron? Did he talk at all about his very short time? Because he was only in the Negro Leagues for a very short period of time. But did he ever talk about what his experiences had been like playing in the Negro Leagues? You know, he didn't talk to me about that, but I heard some lately uh, uh, that uh, he made, I think he made a dollar and 50 cents a day, something like that. And he left with one pair of shoes and he had his sister gave him his, her shirt that she wore, offered her back for him to go and be able to play in the Negro League. But he did talk to me a lot of, a lot of things. He taught me about being a man. He taught me about standing on your own two feet. And don't bring what you do back to the ballpark the next day. If it's a bad day, you accept it, move on, try to make adjustments. If it's a good day, enjoy it, but enjoy it, but don't bring it back the next day. Yeah. He, you know, he taught me how to tie a tie. You know, he's like my dad. <laughs> I, just, I just can't believe that I moved with a guy that's my childhood idol. Can you believe that? Well, and, and I think that's the thing because, and that's something that you and I share in common. Because he was also my childhood idol, my all-time favorite Major League Baseball player. And for so long, until really I got involved with this museum, I had no idea that he had played in the Negro Leagues. And so it was eye-opening for me, as it is eye-opening for the more majority of the people who come to see us, when they see this classic photograph of an 18-year-old Henry Aaron standing at the train station in Mobile, Alabama, and Cito, he couldn't weigh more than 160 pounds. At that time, he looked somewhat afraid, and he has that duffel bag, old cardboard duffel bag, right by his foot. Uh -huh. And that's what he told me. He says, Bob, I may have had a dollar fifty cents in my pocket, a ham sandwich that my mama had made me, uh, going to go chase that dream. And, and two changes of clothes in that bag. And, yeah. and going to go chase that dream and he never looked back. He no. never looked back. But you know, the thing that I admired so much about Mr. Aaron, every time that I got a chance to be with him and be around him whenever I wasn't fanboying, because every time I was around him, man, I was always starstruck. You know, you're, you're saying to yourself, this is Henry Aaron, and there you are, you know, rooming with your childhood idol, 
What was that like the first time you met the great Henry Aaron? Oh, that was great. That was just some, you know, uh, uh, surreal, but it was just unbelievable because Hank was a guy that, uh, you know, he taught me, he taught me a lot of things in life. Uh, but he also, also the, the reason I'm sitting here right now this day is because Hank Aaron got me back in baseball. I don't know if you even know that story, but he called no, me. No, no, I don't. He called me three times and he, he asked me, he said, Cito, would you come work with me? He never said work for me. And he was farm director at the time with the Atlanta Braves. And the third time I said, okay. And I came back and worked with him and I learned so much from, from him during that time. The thing that I really could kick myself about is I never talked to him about hitting and because I didn't, I, I didn't want to bug him because he might kick me out of that room. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to bug him too much. But later on in life, I finally, he would have loved to talk. He loves to talk hitting. And I missed a great opportunity to learn more about hitting through one of the greatest hitters that ever played this game. I, and to me, I've seen Hank hit balls that I've never seen other guys could hit. I mean, hit him out of the ballpark, down and away. And, you know, when he first came up, he hit the ball the right field a lot. And then when he wanted to pull the ball, he turned around and pulled the ball. Yes. And he me, yes. And he told me, he says, you know, I did that because I thought I had a chance maybe to catch up with Babe Ruth at one time. And, uh, uh, but he, he just, just a wonderful man. I mean, uh, treated me great. Uh, he didn't, he, when I say he taught me to stand on my own two feet, he didn't take me out and buy dinner every night, things like that. And in fact, back in those days, we got $25 a week and you had to pay your phone bill. Uh, <laughs> and I used to have about $2 left out of because he'd have all the local calls or whatever. And they were split between the two of us, but I wasn't about to say, Hey, you owe this, you owe that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't stand in that room with him. And he let me use this car all the time anyway, so it's good. Yeah. yeah that's, a, a, that's a dream, man. It's a dream come true. Oh, I, I, I can only imagine because, you know, I am 1999 and he's here and they are celebrating the 25th anniversary of him breaking Ruth's record. And, and as I tell people all the time, it's kind of sad that it took him 25 years yeah. before he could finally exhale and enjoy what most believe to be the most prolific sports accomplishment ever. And that was breaking Ruth's record because of all the hate and vitriol that came his way right. uh, as he was approaching and ultimately surpassing this fable white athlete from Major League Baseball legend and lore. And, and so it was very challenging for him, as you well know. And it literally took him 25 years before he could finally exhale and enjoy what he had accomplished. But the thing that always struck me about him, and I think this is true for all the young players who moved through the Negro Leagues and then ultimately made their way to the major leagues, is they always paid respect and honor to that older ball player in the Negro Leagues. Because that older ball player, Cito, essentially took care of a young Henry Aaron. See, by then, Robinson has broken the color barrier. This is not a pipe dream now. You right. know that there is a chance to get to the show. And they knew that they were too old to get there. So contrary to positive belief, they were not hating on that young ball player that had a chance. They were trying to nurture that ball player and protect them from some of the things that they were experiencing there in the Negro Leagues in hope that they could get to Major League Baseball. You know, I, I used to hear Ernie Banks talk about that very same thing. And Mr. Aaron, he never forgot those players who took care of him, particularly those players there with the Indianapolis Clowns when he joined the Clowns? Well, that's kind of that's kind of man Hank was. You know, he's he's that kind of person. 
very proud, very proud, but very, very caring about other people. And I always made sure I was comfortable when I was around them. Uh, I, I just wish that uh, I had talked to him about hitting a little bit more. Oh, man. <laughs> those, those, those risks, the oh, risks. Yeah. I mean, the most incredible, incredible risk and strong risk, yeah. quick hands. And to hear him say, he says, I never look for a fastball because I didn't think anybody could get one by me. <laughs> yeah, I heard a story like that when he was in the mine. When we were, when I was coaching the mine legs, we were in uh, uh, Winston Salem, and uh, one of the coaches asked Hank, "says Who's the hardest pitcher? Who's the hardest throwing pitcher you ever faced?" And so you know, we all sitting there having a beer, and and I wanted to hear it because I've never asked Hank that. He never even said anything to me about that. And so the kid, Hank didn't ask him. So the kid got a little close to Hank and said, Mr. Aaron, who's the hardest pitcher? Who's the hardest one pitcher you ever faced? He looked him right in the face. He says, I never faced anyone. Through. I never faced one. <laughs> Can you imagine that ball looking like a grapefruit every time he went up there? To hit every up. time he came up there. What a life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the beautiful thing about it, and, and this is what I think rings true with the Negro Leagues, because when I talk about some of the legends of the Negro Leagues and I'm giving tours and people are so respect, they're very respectful, but you can almost tell that there's a little bit of doubt or skepticism about how great these players were. You know, I'm telling them stories about cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson and all these legendary stars. And, and I'm sure they're saying, well, Bob, I'm sure they were good. I don't know if they were as good as you are saying they are. And then you get to that picture that I described to you of a young Henry Aaron. And if I had told you that a skinny cross-headed kid from Mobile, Alabama would break Babe Ruth's record and he would come out of the Negro Leagues, no one would have ever believed it. No, they wouldn't have. But all those things that you have there, I believe all of them. I believe all of them. I think those guys could have played anywhere they wanted to. Yeah. You know, in and, and the big leagues. It just yeah. wouldn't get the opportunity. And thank God for guys like uh, you know, like Mr. Robertson, who made it possible for myself and, and even you that you have the job that you have these days. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to believe, but I, I would love to uh, see Josh Gibson, Gibson here. Oh, my God. Oh, something. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, I, I sit back and, and wish I could have seen him swing that big bat of his, too. I mean, you look at the photographs of him, Cito. And the man is absolutely ripped. He is chiseled. I tell yes. people, if you want an indication of who Josh Gibson looked like physically, think Bo Jackson as a catcher. Yeah. And you got Josh Gibson. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good yeah. description. I mean, yeah, he right. had that, that trademark rolled up yeah. left sleeve, so he's showing off those guns and yeah. big, powerful forearms, <laughs> big, powerful thighs, yeah. and great eyes. Buck O'Neill would describe him in this fashion that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and oh. the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. Oh, what a player, huh? What yeah, a player. Yeah. Oh. And, and swung a 40-ounce, 40 41-inch bat, man. Oh. <laughs> Sound like Rich, some of Richie Allen stuff there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, and again, when you look at the photos of him, he's not choking up. He's got it gripped down below the knob. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, you know, I, I only wish that I could have seen him swing the bat. His power was mythical-like, but as I tell people all the time, it was very real. 
Yeah. <laughs> they're very real. And there were so many legendary stars that would be hard to believe, but it's true. They were. And it is scary to think that there might have been players in the Negro Leagues who certainly was just as good as Henry Aaron and Willie Mays, but didn't get the chance to showcase it in the major leagues. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, to this day, right now, I think there's, there's another Hank Aaron out there somewhere. There's another Willie Mays out there somewhere. There's another, you know, uh, uh, Billy Williams, who, who when oh, I first, yeah. Billy Williams, sweet swinging Billy, one of the greatest hitters out there too. Uh, we just got to get these kids, get these black kids uh, back into the African American, back into baseball. And you know what? It's it's really uh, getting to be really thin for uh, African American playing in baseball. I like to just say black people myself. You know, I, I am American, but I, I know where my ancestors came from too. But I like to see younger kids play this game. They all they all not seven feet tall, but they play basketball. They all don't run a hundred. In the old days, you run a hundred and. and and nine six and nine two something like that. Uh, so there got to be some more out there. Some more Hank Aaron's out there, uh, and then some more Willie Mays and McCovey too, and all those guys, you know. And yeah. Bill Williams, yeah. It has to be. We just yeah. gotta. We just gotta find them. What was your greatest memory as a player? I tell you what, as a player, I, I think when I made the All Star team, yeah, I made the All Star team. And, it's, it's, it's amazing I made the All-Star team my second full year in the big leagues. And the first full year, I just come out of Venezuela where I had a great year, led the league in home run, led the league in RBIs and led the league in hit, hit 383 and 60 ball games. I drove in 64 runs. And I go on a spring training. Just, I was the last guy to get drafted from San Diego, uh, to San Diego, the 30-man roster. I was the last guy they picked. And I go on a spring training. I hit 11 home runs in spring training. I'm still burning it up. <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, I'm taking bad practice one day up. I have an old Neil McBean, and he turns the ball over, and I follow the ball off my shin, and I end up getting my shin, uh, my leg infected. And so that year was a, uh, just a loss. I had two home, two home runs, and I didn't hit about, I hit about 210. Then the next year, uh, one of my favorite matches, Preston Gomez, he had me on everything that was smoking. I played three or four games a day, but he got me back. But you take that year that I could have had that year the year earlier, I had a chance to be rookie of the year. And, you know, I, as a player, uh, that was one of my greatest things to make the All-Star, All-Star team uh, and then get to the big leagues, make it to the big leagues. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, that's amazing. Now we go back to your managerial days. And as a manager, you pretty much accomplished everything that you could accomplish as a manager in baseball. Uh, you had those great Blue Jay teams over there. Uh, yeah. It was obviously filled with a lot of great talent. And I had an opportunity to talk to your friend Dave Roberts on this show. And I asked him about managing talent. You know, uh, as Buck O'Neill would say, you can't expect a thoroughbred to act like a mule. (laughs) (laughs) They just don't. They just don't. And and so how, as a manager, because part of your job, even if you got this great talent, and and, and both Dave and I agree, I'd rather have more thoroughbreds than mules. Now, you you need a few mules as well, but give me some thoroughbreds. What was it like managing that kind of talent? 
It was and personalities. Yeah, talent was, and personalities. It was absolutely great. Uh, I mean, they had to force me to take that job. I don't know if you know that. I was a hitting coach, and uh, we we got we had a good team that year. Sixty. I mean, they had nineteen eighty-seven. We had a pretty good team. Eighty-five. We won the division when Bobby Cox was there, and then Jimmy Williams took over. And I was hitting the coach the whole time, and. And they asked me to take the job, and I said, you know, not too often I can go to work and be happy with what you're doing, you know. <laughs> so I didn't want to take it, and, and thank God Paul Beeson said, no, you it. You, you got it. You take it. So that, that year, I knew my players better than I ever knew ever again. But I think the key is to treat them like men. Uh, when you have to be firm with them, you don't embarrass them. You take them to the side and tell them what you think. And there's certain guys that, you know, you pat on the back, so certain guys you're kicking the butt. And yeah. you got to get to know your players fast. You get to know them the faster you go, the faster you learn, uh, learn about what they can do and what they can do and how to treat them the most successful. They're going to be the most successful you're going to be. And, uh, you know, I have some great players, but, I, you know, I don't know if people know this. The second year we won the World Series, you carry 25 guys. Second year, we, we switched out 14 guys and we brought 14 new guys in and we won back-to-back years. So, but we brought people like Paul Molitor, who probably, if you go back and look at Paul Molitor, if he wasn't on the DL so much, he probably would lead, he would probably lead all of baseball in hits because he's pretty close as it is in the, the time that he was hurt. But these guys were just, I had Dave Winfield there, uh, Dave yeah. Winfield, Jack Mars, and Jack Mars is the only pitcher I know that hates golf. He doesn't like golf at all. <laughs> and, and most pitches play golf and Dave Winfield. So those guys were kind of uh, my left, my right hand guys too, because Dave, anybody acted up that I didn't see, he would get in a case. And Jack Morris, uh, my dugout was so small in Toronto, but I said to the pitchers, you can stay in the clubhouse, but you got to watch the game. Let, let, let me catch you watching any golf. And I didn't have to do that. Jack, Jack kept that straight for me. If, if he's seen those guys watching golf, he'd come around and he'd get all over their case and turn the child. He said, if I come back again, I'm turning it off. And I want to see one of the guys touch <laughs> So I had, and then Joe Carter was the leader. I had some good leaders on that team. And, you know, it's amazing how much our team changed once we traded away, even a Hall of Famer right now. This year, Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got Joe Carter and we got uh, Robbie Alomar. It kind of just changed the whole uh, team, but I would have loved to have all four of those guys, to be honest with you. you know, I want to keep the other two, too. But to, to manage those guys was was a, was a treat for me and a pleasure for me. And, and we all still friends to this day. I mean, I still talk to a lot of them. I see a lot of them uh, here and there. Actually, I seen some of them last week. Uh, you know, spring training. I live, I live right outside of Tampa down in Florida here, a place called Rosemar. And uh, I, I get to see these guys once in a while. That's fun. And I still go back to Toronto a couple of months out of the year. You know, it's like home for me up there too. But yeah, it was great. Uh, but I had some great players. You're right. I, if you go back and look at it, uh, I had at least uh, four Hall of Famers on that team. You know, on the teams, it really did. And Dave Winfield and Jack Morrison and, and certainly Paul Molitor. Yeah, I forgot about Ricky. I had Ricky for a little while. Yeah, that's too. right. Yeah, now Ricky wouldn't let you forget about Ricky. Oh no, <laughs> I can't forget about Ricky. I, I just wish I'd have had him longer, man. What a player! What a oh, player! What a player! They asked me. We inducted Ricky into what we call the Hall of Game, right. and we honor a class each year who we believe played the game 
the way they played it in the Negro Leagues, you know. So you played it with you played it with passion. Right. You played it with great skill, but you also played the game with a little swag. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And you had to have that if you go play in the Negro League. And, <laughs> and Ricky was inducted into our Hall of Game, and they asked me, "Well, who does he compare to in the Negro Leagues?" And honestly, I could not think of a comparison. Ricky is in a league of his own as one of the greatest baseball players. I don't know if he gets enough credit for what he did as a leadoff hitter, the power and speed that he brought to the leadoff position. I don't really have a comparison to. No, you're right. I, I played against some Hall of Famers, and he's different from all of them. All I, of them. Every one of them. And Ricky, Ricky, you know, I used to say, if Ricky gets on first, you might as well just throw the ball to third. That's where you're going to try to come out. <laughs> you know, he's not going to stop him. He's not going to stop him at second. You, you won't stop him at third either. You got your best chance is to throw the ball to third. <laughs> third. But he's amazing. I mean, this guy would put, put, put a team in a scoring position so fast. First in, if not a home run, a base hit, a walk, still, still second, still third, and you got to stand there with nobody out, man on third base. Exactly. And, that's him. And and he's a wonderful person, too. I don't yes, know. Yes, he, he is. He's I, you man. know, just spending time with him and we, and to see him, he had the same reaction to this museum that you had because it was his first visit here when he came in for the induction and he and his wife. And, and he walked through this museum and it was such a humbling experience for him because I think he probably knew from from a peripheral standpoint, but once you are immersed in it, you realize what your legacy is in this game and how it came about. And it just hits you. It hit him. It hit Barry Bonds. It has hit virtually every African-American and Hispanic ball player to ever walk through this museum. You understand that your roots, your legacy is embedded inside this story. And it was really special to see, but there is no question he could have played in the Negro League. <laughs> well, you know, people that haven't seen the museum, you have to go see it. It's just unbelievable. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I got to get back that way one of these days and look at it. It's just, it's just something that uh, that was unbelievable for me to see, and uh, I'm glad I got a chance to see it. Thanks to you. Help continue the legacy of Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill by visiting thanksamillionbuck.com. With one million donations of just a single buck or more, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum can move closer to completion of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were born in 1920. We'll teach not only the stories of Negro Leagues baseball, but also math and science through the lens of baseball history in the spirit of baseball's greatest ambassador, Buck O'Neill. Log on to thanksamillionbuck.com and donate today. Every buck counts. You won two World Series as a manager. Obviously, when you win that first, you move into rarefied air as baseball's first black manager to win a World Series in Major League Baseball. Here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, there were a litany of great managers who, in essence, as Buck O'Neill would say, built the bridge that allowed Cito Gaston to cross over and then ultimately get this opportunity to play and then manage at the Major League level and then have great success at it. 
guys like Rube Foster, who was a brilliant manager. Rube Foster was light years ahead of his time. Or the very astute C.I. Taylor, who had gone uh, to Clark College in Atlanta, Georgia. True gentleman of the game, but just a brilliant tactician. And they said that C.I. Taylor would train them and then Rube Foster would steal them away from him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, those guys certainly wouldn't have had this chance either. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the beautiful thing about it. Or Frank Duncan, who managed some great Monarch team. And of course, my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, who was an outstanding manager who could have very easily have been the first black manager in Major League Baseball. The great George Altman, who just turned 90 years old last week. He told me, and he played for Buck with the Monarchs, and then Buck brings him on over to the Chicago Cubs, and he played with the Cardinals and the Mets, and then goes overseas to play. Had a great, great career in Japan. And he told me to this day that the greatest manager he ever played for was Buck O'Neill. Wow, I can say that. And he said the same thing that you said in terms of the relatability to your players. He said Buck knew when to put his arm around you, and he knew when to kick you in the rump. And he knew who he needed to do that to. Some players respond differently, and Buck seemingly understood those men. He knew how to lead men. And it is somewhat a shame that he didn't get to showcase that in the major leagues, but he was brilliant in the Negro leagues. And I was so happy, even though it was 16 years after he passed away, that we finally got him in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Which, you know, which is a shame. I wish he went in while he was alive. What a great man he was, too. Just a great ambassador for the game. Every time he go into Kansas City, he was there. Got a chance to talk to him. Oh, he had great stories, too. Great Always stories. great, great stories. And, yeah. and, and I get to share those stories that he shared with me now. And we try to keep those stories alive. And, and so when did you really fully grasp the historic nature of what you had accomplished when you win that first World Series and in essence break a barrier yourself? Well, it was pretty amazing. That that was the same year that, no, it wasn't the same year, but in 2000, I think it was in 1990, 1987, uh, I started to manage in 89, sorry, 89. And uh, first time Frank Robinson and I was going up against each other's first two black managers ever managed against each other. So they made a big deal out of it. And I, I, I wouldn't even think about it until I got to Baltimore and started thinking about it, and, as well as, as what I have accomplished in my life as far as a manager. I think about it sometimes, but I, sometimes I think about it, you know, it's pretty Pretty amazing what you've done, Cito, and uh, uh, you didn't really ask for that, but you got it, and I'm going to enjoy it the rest of my life. You know, it's, 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 it's amazing that all I wanted to do was play baseball, and, you know, I, I tell the story that there's three things I want to do in my life when I was a little kid. I want, I want to be a truck driver. My dad was a truck driver. <laughs> yeah, and I want to be a singer, and I want to be a baseball player. Well, I tell you what, my dad taught me how to drive those big rigs when I was about 15 years old, which I shouldn't have been driving. And then I got to play baseball, professional baseball on big league level. So I do, I've done two of the three things I want to do in my life. Man, how great a life have I had? And, and, and to meet you, meet all the people that I've, I've been, you know, McCovey and I was, used to be 
uh, seed buddies on the plane. And Mike was a great guy too. When he was in San Diego, and they would put us together because we were two of the bigger guys there on the team. And uh, just to meet Mr. Mays, Hank May, Willie Mays, one time when he was in New York at the Mets, uh, we used to use these kangaroo gloves. And him and Hank Aaron's the only two were still getting them because they had they had stopped making them for a while. And Willie was. I was talking to Will. I said, are you still getting those gloves, the kangaroo gloves? I said, yeah, you want this one? He said, just give me yours. And that's what he did. He gave me his glove just just, just like that. Here, take wow. it. Wow. Wow. Take it. Somebody said you should have kept it. I said, I, I should have, but I wanted to play in it too. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been very fortunate to meet a lot of great people. Ernie Banks have given me some great advice in, time, in my life when I was first starting to play. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, Billy Williams, same thing. Same thing. But I'm very fortunate that all this has happened to me. So I do think about As I said, as I get older, Bob, I started thinking more about it. And uh, certainly we have lost a lot, of, a lot of good friends lately. So I, I'm really going to miss those. I really miss those guys. And as we talk about Hank, uh, he's, he was like my dad. He's like yeah. my dad. Yeah. 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 No, there, there, there is a void in my heart since the passing of my childhood idol and all-time favorite baseball player Henry Aaron uh, it, he was just a special human being yes he was yeah and, and I never got to meet Satchel I haven't had many disappointments in this role here at the Negro Leagues Museum but if I did it would not be it would be not meeting the legendary Satchel Page. he used to hang out at a gas station here on 31st and Prospect playing uh-huh. checkers and telling lies and I never got a chance. He died. <laughs> he died in 1982. Yeah. And, and so I didn't get a chance to, to ever meet him. I felt like I knew him from all the stories that Buck O'Neill shared about his friend Satchel Page. And but man, what what a great life to have had an opportunity to know Henry Aaron and Ernie Banks and Willie Mays. And you know, I don't know what they put in that water in Mobile, Alabama. Wow. But to get a Henry Aaron or Willie McCovey and Ozzie mm-hmm. Smith or Satchel Page, uh, you probably did. You ever meet the great Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe? Because he used no, to always hang out at White Sox Park. Oh, and, really? and, oh. Yeah, Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe, who also was a brilliant manager, got his nickname Double Duty when the great sports writer Damon Runyon saw Duty catch a Satchel Page shutout in the first game of a doubleheader, pulled off the catcher's gear, took the mound, and threw a shutout in the second game of the doubleheader and said it was worth the price of two admissions. He was double duty from that day forward. He died at 103 in Chicago in 2005. You kidding me. That's a, that's, <laughs> see, those are the kind of stories that we need to hear. More people need to hear. And that, I was so impressed with you that you knew all that stuff when we were there. You were giving us these stories and all that stuff. That was awesome. Which we don't, you know, you don't know about all that. How would we know that? Exactly. You, Exactly. Uh, but, you know, as you said, I never got a chance to meet Satch. I was, went to San Diego, but he was with the Braves. And, and one, I, Dustin told me the story that they're playing an inter-squad game and Ralph lays a bun down on him. Ralph Gard laid a bun down on Satch. And everybody, <laughs> everybody's getting all over all over Ralph. How can you lay a bun down on that old guy? <laughs> he says, I don't care. He's trying to get me out, too. That's pull the muscle. You pull the muscle trying to fill that bun. <laughs> but I wish I'd have got a chance to meet him too. But I, I was gone by the time he came over to the Braves. I know Dusty. Uh, you know Dustin. I've been knowing each other since we was eight. He's he's eighteen years old, 
And uh, I just spoke to him a couple of days ago, wishing him well. And along with Dave Robertson, I have other, I have other, uh, Snick in Atlanta, at the Atlanta Braves manager. Uh, him and I came through came through the uh, Braves organization as coaches, and that was that's behind Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron hired us all there, and I uh, got to know uh, Johnny Sane, uh, yes. who taught me how to throw a slider in ten pitches, and I could never throw a slider in my life. And he, <laughs> that's how teach he was. He's very, he, you know, he he's pretty bad with names. I'm pretty bad with names, but he was bad with names. But he told me, see, I just call everybody a big guy. <laughs> hmm, maybe I should take that approach too because I'm terrible with names. Oh, oh I can't was believe always that. Great with it. Yeah, oh. no, maybe that's what I need to do too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, your place in history is certainly there as the first black manager. And then Dave Roberts wins a World Series. Mm-hmm. And then your good friend and my good friend, Dusty Baker, breaks through. Right. And, and wins that World Series. Uh, what did that make you feel? Now that you've got two uh, other compadres in, in that echelon of black managers to win World Series. I'm getting goosebumps as you, you mentioned their names and what they have done. And I was, you know, I, I had so proud of both of them and so hard. And it opens up the door for hopefully other black guys, you know, other, other African-Americans is what they've done. And, and let, let me tell you something. Don't put it past them not to win another one. I'm not, I'm not sure who's going to do it this year. It might be Dustin, it might be Dave. I'm not sure. Yeah, but don't yeah. put it past them. Yeah, they, I know Dustin. Yeah. Dustin told me he wants another one. You know, you get one, you want two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, why, why not show up? You might as well don't show up if you don't want two of them. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. But and, I was and, so proud of him. I was so proud. And, you know, I was so close to calling Dusty. And when he was in Anaheim and he, he's with the uh, San Francisco Giants, they, I think they were two awesome winning the World Series back then. And it didn't, it didn't work out for him. But you know what? He stuck in there and he hung in there. And uh, hopefully this year he's going to do it again. If not, hopefully they're doing it. But I have other friends in baseball too, but I'm pulling for those two guys uh, with my heart. And uh, we, I, I, we're trying to get together and get a picture of all three of us. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I already dropped the I already dropped the seed on Dusty that I want that to happen here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, where we get all three of you guys together, hey, which would be absolutely can, epic to we, make that happen. You listen, if you, I'll be there, okay? Yeah, I'll no, that that would be something yeah. pretty doggone special. All right, I got two names that I want to run past you. That I want to just kind of get your thought when I say these names. Uh, both are great friends of mine. Okay. Dave Stewart. Oh man, <laughs> I had oh man, I had Dave as a as a player, and you know, and also had him as as, as my general manager, assistant GM when in, in, in Toronto. Uh, what a great competitor! And the other one, of course, another dear friend of mine, lives here in Kansas City, Joe Carter. Oh, sweet. Joe Curtis. <laughs> oh, man. I just, I see Joe last week. I was fortunate to see him last week down in Florida. He was here for a while. He has a big golf tournament in Toronto every year. I played it. And uh, Joe, I, I tell this story, and I think Joe gets a little embarrassed. I've told it so many times, but I'm still going to keep telling him. You know, <laughs> Joe would come in and uh, he suffered with migraine headaches a little bit. And he'd come in and go, Skip, have you put the lineup up? I said, Not yet. He says, Give me a minute. I got a little migraine going. He would go on the sauna, and let me tell you, Bob, he always played. He always played. He never, he, Joe did not want a day off, 
But I don't know if you noticed about Joe. He's like Michael Jordan. He will not let his kids win a checker game from him. Yeah. Now, Joe's competitive. <laughs> yeah, no, no, Joe's competitive. competitive. Yeah, very no, he's competitive. competitive. I play golf with him. He competitive. Yeah, no, we play <laughs> golf together. Yeah, That's he invites all. me over to his club every now and then. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to tell him to invite you a little bit more. I was tell that, though. Yeah. What a, what a guy, though. I mean, uh, he, he played his heart out for me. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he likes, he says, you know, see, I'm still living on that home run, you know, that I hit. I said, that was a big home run, though, Joe. Touch them all, Joe. Touch them all, Joe. <laughs> and Buck O'Neill, of course, signed Joe to his first hey, pro contract. I did not know that. He signed Joe to the Cubs. Uh-huh, out of Wichita State University, and Buck outmaneuvered all the other scouts, and he got his guy and got Joe to sign with the Cubs and, and, and actually helped Joe secure what was back then a pretty good signing bonus. And, and, and Buck and Joe were as close as close could be. So oh. now Buck has Ernie Banks, Lou Brock, Lee Arthur Smith, as players that he signed who are now in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And hopefully one day Joe will cross over that threshold as oh well. My. Yeah, that's, I mean, so that's yeah, awesome. that's, yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty good. That's that's, that's real, good. <laughs> real good. Well, Buck knew, he knew what he was doing. He, he knew talent, man. He knew talent. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and all of them were like surrogate sons. The way that you see Mr. Aaron, right. I think all four of those individuals looked at Buck the same way. Right. You know, he was more than just someone who had signed them. He was family. He were he he was their surrogate father. He took yep. care of them. Uh, and particularly Ernie and Lou. Uh, yeah. Because that was at a time when they needed that guidance to kind of be able to adjust to life in the major leagues. Uh, particularly Ernie having left the Monarchs and didn't want to leave the Monarchs. He didn't want to go. They had right. to push him out the nest. So, Ernie, you got to go. You got to go so that the next one will have an opportunity. And, 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 um, and I'm glad he did that. What a hitter he was, too. Oh, yeah. oh. Well, he, he, I used to watch Ernie set up pitches, you know. He, he, they'd throw him a curveball, he'd almost fall on the ground. <laughs> and here they come back with, with it again out of the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great hitter. Yeah, yeah, no, and he was a great human being. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Uh, love, the, uh, love the game. Love the game. Yes. And, and he says that Buck O'Neill taught him how to play baseball. And Buck says, no, I didn't really teach Ernie how to play. Ernie could play. What I taught Ernie how to do was love baseball. And, hey. and I think that is what Ernie took with him over from the Negro Leagues over to Major League Baseball was this love of the game. And he says Buck would hit ball after ball to him and in the hot Kansas City he in the dead of summer, and he couldn't get enough of it. Uh-huh. And, and he took that same work ethic, but that joy, that unbridled joy that we saw Ernie exude there in Chicago. You know, that was Buck O'Neill. That was Buck O'Neill through and through. I can believe that. You know, now that you mentioned that, that's true. That is so true. Because Ernie, Ernie never stopped talking during the game. And he always said, let's play two. Let's yeah. play two. Let's yeah. play two. Uh, 
And if you ask, if you ask Billy Williams and some of the other guys, Ernie never stopped talking. No, he never, <laughs> he never stopped talking. He never stopped talking. I, I know I got a hit off him. I got a hit in Chicago one day at the first base. And, and I don't know if you noticed this, but Hank Aaron, Mr. Aaron, Hank Aaron, and, and Ernie Banks and, and, uh, and Dick um, Richard Allen, they'd ask you a question. But before you can ask the question, they go, huh, huh? They go, huh, huh? <laughs> and so, so, so um, he asked me, he says, Cito, what kind of pitcher was that you hit? This, this, is, this is Ernie Banks. And I said it was a slider. He said, anybody can hit a hanging slider, Cito. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was, he, he was fun to be around. Let's see what yeah, happened. man. He, I, I, all these guys, I, I miss them so much. Uh, and, 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 of course, it's hard not to think about them because of the work that I do here. Uh, but their spirits are still very much alive. Yes, very sir. much alive here and. Lou Brock, who, while he was just outside the Negro Leagues, Buck found him down at Southern University and got him to sign with the Cubs. And the Cubs, of course, would trade him away in one of the worst yeah. trades in Major League Baseball history for a hurt arm pitcher named Ernie Brolio. Wow. Uh-huh. And, and Lou leaves Chicago and goes to St. Louis and instantly helps push the cards into a pennant race and goes on to become a Hall of Famer. And Buck said every time, because Buck was the last one, Cito, to sign off on the trade. And I think the Cubs came to him as a courtesy because he right. knew how close Lou, he and Lou were. Right. And so Buck being the company man, he said, you know, this is a good idea. Uh, we need pitching. And he also knew that Lou needed a chance to play every day. There you go. And so he yeah. signs off on it. And Buck said every time he went to Bush Stadium, <laughs> they gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> They're so happy he did that. <laughs> oh yes, yes, yes. The gift that kept on giving. Oh please. You know, <laughs> Luke Brock is one of the guys I used to say you you start running the ball. You know, he he, he you hit a ball to him and look like it's over his head. He'd catch up with that ball just about every time, man. It was unbelievable the speed he had, the quickness he had. So his first step was so fast. Yeah. You know, he I, I used to see him run still second base and depends. Sometimes he wouldn't slide something. Wouldn't even slide. Yeah, he'd go in there pulling up. That's yeah. not fast. Got down there. Well, one one of the great memories that I have of many great memories here was sitting down in a conversation with Lou Brock and he talked about the art of base running. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're right. He had the great speed, but Lou actually knew what he was doing. Sure he did. Yeah. yeah and, and he told me that the legendary cool Papa Bell <laughs> When he got to St. Louis, Cool was living in St. Louis. All right. And Lou says the first call he gets is from Cool Papa Bell. And he says, well, I knew who Cool Papa Bell was, but I didn't think Cool Papa Bell knew who I was. <laughs> and, and he wanted to meet with Lou. And he says that Cool Papa Cito started telling him some things about base stealing and base running that he said, Cool, I've never heard this before. This ain't in the book. He said, no, he said, I never saw this in the book. Cool looks at him and said, because it ain't in the book. Uh, <laughs> and, and he took it to heart. And he also said that he got with Jesse Owens uh-huh. to show him how to come out of the starter's block. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's where he got that quick start from. That's where it? that quick start yeah. came from. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What a, so when, what a player. 
Yeah, no, what a great player and, and a great friend of this museum. And I miss him dearly and all the guys yeah. that we talked about, man. But I, I can't thank yeah. you enough for spending time with me uh, as part of this Black Diamonds podcast. It's, it is so good to see you, even if it's in a digital realm. <laughs> I can't wait to see you back here in Kansas City. We applaud you for everything that you have given this game. And I say this all the time. Now, I know you have no interest in managing, but I say this all the time. Every time a managerial job comes up, I said, man, they should be calling Cito. I don't care if he don't want a job. They uh, still should be calling Cito Gaston <laughs> to see if they can talk him out of retirement. And I mean that sincerely. Cito, we can, again, thank you enough for what you've given this game. Uh, we are so very proud and appreciative of everything that you have accomplished. And I do hope that I can get you, Dave Roberts, and Dusty Baker here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for that epic photograph of the only three Black managers to win a World Series, but to do it in this environment so that the legend, the legend of Ruth Foster and Buck O'Neill and C.I. Taylor, all those legendary managers of the Negro Leagues can also stand up and applaud as well would be pretty doggone special, man. It would, it would, yeah, it would be also, it would be awesome. And, and yeah. thank you for all those kind words. I appreciate you, Bob. Yeah. Thank you very much, man. No, no, you. Anytime. You, Let me know anytime, okay? You saw, you absolutely deserve it. I can't thank you enough for being on Black Diamonds. And like I said, we look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Okay, my pleasure. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, with additional voiceovers provided by Donnie or Samuels. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. SiriusXM Podcasts.